listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. We are in a Shaping Faith series, and this this series kind of has three movements to it, which matches a book. Uh, there's a book out by uh, uh, Henri Nouwen. Say Henri. Nouwen. Everybody always says Henry, but uh, I'm a big enough nerd that I happen to know it's Henri. Um, Henri Nouwen. And he... Uh, he he wrote a book that had, it talks about three movements of spiritual formation and how our spiritual formation always starts with inner solitude, like this inner work, and then it moves to a communal work, and then it moves to a service work. And uh, that's the same movement you're going to find in this series. So, uh, and I don't believe anybody read that book when they put the series together, so we must be onto something. Um, but we are wrapping up the first movement, which is of the core four. And the idea of the core four is that these are four disciplines that are supposed to go to work to change us internally. They are internal disciplines. That doesn't mean they're individual, by the way. They are both individual and corporate. We pray individually and we pray corporately. We worship individually and we worship corporately. We study the text, hopefully individually, and we study the text corporately. You can even fast individually and fast corporately. So these are, but these disciplines are about changing us from the inside. And so we've talked about text and this idea of Hagah, say Hagah. It's this idea of, of, of getting the text in us because what it does is as the New Testament says, it renews our mind. It helps us to not be conformed to the world but let our minds be changed. Let our mind, not just knowledge, not just like an acquiring, but a knowledge that actually changes us. So we talked about prayer. Prayer is like a, about surrender. You, you can like, Prayer is about taking your agenda. Prayer forces you to set, if you're doing it right, you set that aside and you listen more for God's agenda and you try to align yourself with what God is doing and less of what you, what you think God is doing. And though that, it changes us on the inside. And last week, Josh talked to us about worship and worship being about intimacy and this idea of into me you see. And that is an internal work because yes, we might be like, well, God already knows. God already sees. Yes, it's not about what God sees. It's about what we allow him to see. It's about this vulnerability where we change ourselves from the inside and we quit trying to like hide stuff and hide it from ourselves or hide it from others and hide it from, it's this intimacy that grows through worship. And so today we want to talk about fasting, which will be about self-control. And fasting is an interesting topic to talk about because everybody gets a little wound up about it. I think we kind of hold it at arm's length because we don't really ever talk about it. We don't know what to do with it. Um, the last time I was asked to preach about fasting was 12 years ago, just under 12 years ago. That's how often that we preach on it. It was three jobs ago for me um, was when the last time I preached on fasting. I remember when I, when I got asked to preach on it, I had to do all this work beforehand because I didn't have a whole lot of experience or training. It just wasn't something that, I went to four years of Bible college, uh, grew up in the church my whole life. There was like all these impl- like these things that were implied, but never really explained. I was in high school. We did like three fasts. We did two 40-hour famines. Yeah, okay, thank you. Nobody, Thursday or first service, seemed to know anything about that. Um, I, have, I have a fellow 40-hour faminer. Um, we did that uh, when I was in high school twice. And we did like a media fast for summer camp one time. Uh, that was like the worst. And that wasn't even like today, like smartphones. That was just like... We didn't have cell phones at that point. It was just a media fast and it was like no TV and we were all panicking. 
Um, and Netflix wasn't around either. Man, I'm really old. Holy smokes. Anyway, so, so I had to do a whole bunch of work. Or maybe to start off this morning, we can talk about like what fasting is. Oh, I wanted to add this too. And this isn't to like, I want you to know that this stuff comes from where I've been and personal experience. I remember studying fasting leading up to that sermon because I didn't know what to say. Um, nobody had ever really taught me about it. And then I didn't want to just talk from an intellectual. I wanted to actually have experienced fasting. So prior to the sermon, I did like a 40-day food fast, um, which by the way, uh, that was a very intentional fast. It wasn't an idiotic fast. I talked to, I had a medical doctor in my accountability group and he would like talk to me about how to get into the fast and out of the fast. And I, I drank like so many gallons of V8 fusion. Do you remember that? Yeah, gallons and gallons of that. And a little bit of juice and a little bit of milk. I stopped drinking caffeine. Like I was really intentional about what halfway through, like a couple different walls that you hit. The second wall is about day 14. And after that, I started drinking protein shakes. I had a friend over at my house. Um, I, I blended a banana in my protein shake. He was like, that's cheating. He's the legalist with the clipboard on the... And I'm like, what day of the fast are you on? Yeah, I don't care. Um, so... So a lot of the things that I'm going to speak of kind of come out of that. Since that, I've been able, like fasting has become a really regular part of my spiritual formation over the last decade and just really enjoyed the work that it's been able to do in me routinely throughout the year at different times of the year and when I need it to and, and all that stuff. So I want to talk by talking about what fasting is not. Let's just get what fasting is not out of the way, talk about what fasting is, and then look at some text to close out. Does that sound good? Excellent, I'm already running behind. Let's go. Fasting is not the magical incantation dust you sprinkle on your prayers to make them more powerful. Like sometimes we have this idea of like, well, my prayers aren't working, so I'll fast and really get God's attention. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. How about the next one? Fasting is not a show of piety to prove your religiosity and dedication to God. Like this is not like some like, look at me, God. Look at how well I love you, God. Do you see, God? My love for you is true love, God. Do you see? Don't do that. God does not like that. It talks against that very directly. Fasting is not, next one, a vending machine transaction where God is forced to act. We do this all the time. At least we talk like it. I don't know if we really believe it, but we talk like it. Like, I'm going to fast until I get an answer. God doesn't work like that. Like, you don't put in a fast or put in a prayer and pull the lever and, like, see what God gives you. Like that's not how it works. These are about internal transformation moments. So we'll talk more about that as we go. Fasting is not a great decision about physical care. It is, but that's not what I'm talking about. I am not a medical doctor, so you will not hear me talking about the physical aspects of fasting. Does that make sense? Please don't leave here and go be an idiot. Does that make sense? Uh, somebody came up to me and actually asked a really good question Thursday evening. They came up and they're like, oh man, I am all about fasting, but I have been recovering from an eating disorder. And I went, whoa, we probably want to really take a look at doing something different with your fast than a food fast. Just like if I were talking about feasting and somebody was like, I'm an alcoholic, well, let's adjust your feasting then. Does that make sense? Like don't be, even in the rabbinical world of Yom Kippur for diabetics and People with, people with eating disorders are actually included in the rabbinical ruling I went and found out. Like, 
all these different things. You're excused from that kind of fasting and actually instructed to do. So, so please, please, like this is not like, oh, it's spiritual, so it will be supernatural. Moses did that, and you could say Jesus. We're not told if Jesus drank only water. Um, doesn't say, we could assume, I don't know. But Moses and Jesus are the only ones to do a 40-day fast in the Bible. And we're told that Moses was sustained by the presence of God on Mount Sinai. So unless you feel like that's your call, which if you do, you're, you're probably like 99% wrong. So come talk to me before you do anything dumb. Okay. Man, this is not going to go well this morning. Let's see here. Let's talk about what fasting is. I read a book titled Finding Your Way Again by Brian McLaren, and it helped me when I was trying to figure out what fasting was. It turned so many lights on for me. By the way, right now, it is a dollar on Kindle. One dollar. Um, it is a book bonanza, okay? So um, he, he had some quotes. I'll start here. Let's look at this quote. Fasting is. Nobody ever explained to me how fasting was supposed to work. The rules of the art of fasting weren't known explicitly to me or to the mentors who told me I should do it. This was true for me. Like I had grown up in a Christian world that seemed to imply to me and tell me that when you fast, you get more spiritual. Like you get more focused. You get more clarity. You get, like you become a spiritual superhero when you're fasting. Like when you're not fast, or not when, when you're not eating, you're supposed to be praying like this was all like the stuff I had like picked up, like stuff flying by me. And I, 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 that was not what my experience was. So that leads me to this next quote. I acknowledged, Brian says in his book, I acknowledged my weakness in the face of impulses and cravings from my body. I had this impression I was gonna get more spiritual, more focused. What I experienced was the exact opposite. So when I would fast, like I'd be like, okay, I'm supposed to be thinking about, so I would like picture Jesus and I, he would have like a halo behind his head, but that halo would turn into like a Krispy Kreme donut. And I would be like, mmm, donut Jesus. And then I would get like super frustrated. Like I'm not doing this right. I'm supposed to be more spiritual and I'm feeling less spiritual. I'm feeling more carnal, more fleshly, more broken, more human. Like I am not feeling like awesome. I'm feeling like garbage. And to read, and this, this is one quote out of a paragraph of other stuff, but to read about this and go, oh, I'm not doing it wrong, I'm doing it right. That's what it, fasting is supposed to break it down. Fasting is about humility. That's, that's what biblical fasting is connected to. Fasting is about humility. Why? Because it breaks you down. If you're, if you're struggling with pride, fast. Because nothing will make you feel like you're not that great. <laughs> like fasting. Why, why am I so distracted by something stupid like food or my technology or you take that thing away that you, and why am I so addicted to this stuff? Because you're human? Because you're broken? Because God comes alongside and helps you all the time every day, right? Fasting reminds you of that. Reminds you of things that you forget as you just go. Fasting actually gets you in touch with your weakness, not your awesomeness. It does the exact, when I learned that, it's like fasting, the doors blew open on fasting. It's like, oh, well now I can embrace the practice because I thought I was doing it wrong. Next, 
Brian said, I practiced impulse control. Like you literally, that's the definition of fasting. You cannot fast without practicing self-control. You have to be able to say no to something. This is the part of you, by the way, that when Jews look at the story of Adam and Eve, the Jewish perspective is this is what Adam and Eve is all about. It's not about the fall of mankind. It's about how are you made in the image of God? What does that mean? And they keep comparing mankind to the snake and mankind to the snake because the snake is talking and relating and walking and all that kind of stuff. We'll do that sermon some other time. But there is this, what is it about, uh, what, what is the difference between an animal and you? An animal will never, ever practice self-restraint. I realize you can train a dog to sit. I get that. It's not my point. My point is a deer will never walk around in the woods and go, you know what I'm not going to do today? Eat. If a deer is hungry, it's going to eat. If it's mating season, a deer is going, don't answer that, but you get the idea. When a beast has impulses, a beast acts on it, but you are more than a beast. And so fasting connects you to the beast part of you and also allows you to practice the God image part of you. Ah, ah, okay, that's only me. Okay, next. Simultaneously, so at the same time that these two things are taking place, At the same time, I asserted myself to the importance of something other than impulse control. So self-control is not just the end. Self-control also gives me a presence, a mindfulness, a spiritual awareness. It makes me spiritually woke to the things that are true in my life. Does that make sense? I become aware, because I connect myself to my frailty and because I practice self-control, I become terribly aware of what is also true inside of me, of the parts of me that I'm like, ooh, what is that? Ooh, I do not like that. Or, or what is that thing that was there all along and I never could see it because it was all buried in all this other stuff? And now that I've stripped that away, now I become more aware of this thing that I should have been aware of the whole time, but I wasn't. And then last, one of my favorite quotes, fasting that day also helped me trade something I could see for something I couldn't. Does anybody ever get really frustrated in spiritual formation that we're always talking about things that are invisible? Like a, a, relation, a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, like the one you have with your wife or your kids or your friends. Well, the problem is, is I can see my wife and see my kids and see my friends. I can't see Jesus. Like we can't go get a cup of joe. Like we can, but we can't, right? We're always like talking about these abstract truths in a very physical, tactile world. What fasting does is it it pulls those two things together. You give up something very physical that you can literally touch. You give up the tactile. You give up the visible. You give up the physical so that you can physically connect yourself to the invisible, to the spiritual, to the abstract. I traded something I could see for something that I couldn't. And it connects it in a tactile way that very rarely do we have the opportunity to do. One more piece about what fasting is that I found not 12 years ago, but this year. I was reading a book recommended me to a friend who's here today. Uh, It was a book called Fasting by Scott McKnight. On Thursday, it was $2 on Kindle. Hashtag Thursday perks. (laughs) I worked hard on that joke. The, but today it's four and a half dollars, still worth your money on Kindle. 
but Fasting by Scott McKnight. And he had a diagram in there that especially for visual learners, I love. Doesn't work for everybody, but it may help you. And I wanted to adapt it and use it today. He said, there's really three different parts to the fasting equation. We'll put these three different parts up here. There's three different parts to the fasting experience. First of all, there's the event or the circumstances. Like I might be going through life and realizing that I am struggling with, I, I, never, I didn't realize it, but all of a sudden, boom, it washes over me. I'm struggling with ego and pride and arrogance. Or I get the news that somebody has passed away and I want to enter a place of grieving. Or so, something happens, but there, there's an event or a circumstance that drives me to the next one, which is the fast pretty self-explanatory. And then what comes later is what we might call the movement of God. This is where we say things that are really theologically inaccurate, but things like, and then God showed up. No, God was already there. I think you showed up. Like you spiritually showed up. God was already present. Uh, we, and then God moved. Well, God was all, John 5, Jesus says, my father is always at work and he never stops working. Amen. God is always at work. It's not that he, like he's sitting there going, hmm, 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 hmm. Now, sometimes he does need us to be changed. So sometimes he's like, well, when you're ready, I'm ready to go. But, but that's, so there's A and there's B and there's the event, the circumstances, there's the fast, and then there's the movement of God. And what Scott McKnight points out is that in the Western world, we actually have a much more pagan way of interacting with the discipline. We're much more pagan in our Western mindsets than we realize. And he, he explains it like this. Next slide. We have a movement that goes from here to here to here. We have the event. And so whatever happens that drives me to fast, because of this, I fast. But in, in, the, in the pagan world, I fast looking into the future. I fast because what I want to do is I want to draw the gods to act. Like I wanna make God do something. That's pagan. This idea that I do things facing the future because I can manipulate the gods somehow. By the way, this is what we do with the core four when we're not doing them right. Right? Prayer is about me manipulating God and getting God to do something. That's pagan. Prayer is supposed to be saying, God, let me put down my agenda and give me yours right? Uh, worship is about God, in a pagan world, God, give me the warm fuzzy. Pour out your spirit because I want to feel it. I want to get something from you. When what worship is supposed to do is connect, open up my soul and connect me in intimacy with God. We, we study the text because we're trying to figure out like, if I do this and put the formula together, then God will. Rather than saying, God, Show me as I look back on the history of, of your people what it is that I'm supposed to learn so that I'm ready to move forward. Fasting, we fast typically looking into the future and biblical fasting, next slide, is the opposite. Biblical fasting is something happens. I don't fast looking into the future. I fast looking into the past. My fast is a response to what has happened, not a precursor to what will happen. Fasting is me going, oh God, I don't know what to do with what I just experienced. Would you humble me? Would you teach me? 
Would you open my eyes as I look into the past? And because of that, it changes me. And because I'm changed, I now see something that I wasn't able to see before. God is able to move because I'm now in a place to put my pride aside. Like, like it's all, you don't fast looking into the future, you fast looking into the past. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, now, let me show you a couple passages that kind of will help put, uh, put this in flesh and blood here. Uh, Judges 20 let me set this up here. Judges 19, the chapter previous, is a story about a Levite who is traveling through the land of Israel. He is in the territory of Benjamin. Say Benjamin. He's in the territory of Benjamin, and he's with his concubine, which, by the way, pause. I just have to get this off my chest. A concubine is not a sex slave. I know whenever we say that, everybody that's been around the Bible for a long time goes, concubine, sex slave. That is not what a concubine is. A concubine is a legal wife in the ancient patriarchal world who gives up her covenantal rights to a family inheritance, typically because all those mouths that sit around the table, all the inheritance has to be split across all of those family members. And so a concubine is somebody that comes in and says, I want to be a part of the family, but I, w I don't want to take away everybody else's share. She is not a sex slave. That is the most fundamentally, because if she's a sex slave, by the way, doesn't that raise about 40 million other questions that nobody ever seems to want to ask about Judges 19? Like, why does a Levite have a concubine? Only one person? Okay. <laughs> anyway, I had to get that off my chest. He's going through Benjamin and his concubine gets mistreated. She is a and there's a whole other set of questions I understand. Judges 20, not Judges 19. She is, she is mistreated. She is abused. She is murdered. The next day, he prophetically makes this huge decision, cuts up her body and sends a piece of the body to every one of the, ten, the 11 tribes of Israel and says, look at what happened in Benjamin. And the, the people of God rise up in righteous indignation and they come out to war against their brother Benjamin. And they select Judah to go up against Benjamin. And so Judah goes up on the first day to battle against their brother Benjamin and 22,000 soldiers fall by the sword. And they come home and they go, um, God, did we mishear you? Like, do you not want us to do something about this? Because in Deuteronomy it says, like, we're supposed to do something about this. Are, are we wrong? And God says, no, you're not wrong. And so they go up the second day and that's where we pick up here. Uh, last, uh, yeah, there we go. And the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. And all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. Notice the fast is not connected to the inquiry. They inquired of the Lord yesterday. Without fasting, they know how to inquire of the Lord. The fasting is not connected. The fasting is their response to what? Losing 40,000 soldiers in the last two days. Now let me finish the passage. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Pinchas, say Pinchas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aharon, ministering before it. They asked, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? 
And the Lord responded, go for tomorrow, I will give them into your hands, which is not what he said the previous day. What I find interesting about that, which I know raises a whole bunch of questions as we deal with the text 3,000 years old. But what it appears God is saying is when you showed up in righteous indignation, you weren't where I wanted you to be. But when your heart is finally broken by the things that break my heart, well, now we're ready. I didn't just want you to show up because you were right. I wanted you to show up because you had my heart. And now we're ready to move forward. You see, what happened is, is they, they know that something's off because they know they're trying to do the right thing, but they've just lost 40,000 of their brothers and maybe sisters in that world, probably brothers. And they look back and they go, well, I, I, this, is, this is not how this is supposed to go. I grieve, I humble myself, I strip all the outside stuff away. And because they can see it, God says, now you're ready. Now you're ready. Now, how about this, uh, how about Esther? The book of Esther, a uh, story of a guy by the name of Haman. Boo, sorry. Purim's coming up. And during the Purim festival, whenever you say the name Haman, everybody has noisemakers and they all stomp and they go, boo. So try, let's try it. When Haman, yes. He, he convinces the king to make an edict that basically says on this day, on such and such a day in the future, all the Jews are going to get slaughtered. And the Jews get word of this, and that's where we pick up the story. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Notice this story is completely void of step three, of, of step C. They're not even talking to God about it. There's no request they're making of God at this point. At this point, they're only responding to what they've heard. They're not even asking God anything at this moment. All they're going is the king says, what? Oh no, it's looking backwards. And their fasting is never connected with looking forwards. Now some are gonna say, well, Esther fasts the night before she goes. Yes, not because she needs an answer. She already knows what she has to do. What she does is she fasts to humble herself and make sure her spirit's right when she walks into that meeting. Okay, enough. Uh, I need to be done because I'm late as last service. Um, but I want to talk about a couple more passages we have in your notes. And I want to close with some questions. But before we do, I'd like to send our servers back to begin serving us the Lord's Supper. And uh, when we have that Eucharist moment, um, if you're visiting with us today, we have an open table. So that means if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you join us, your family, today. Just hold on to the bread, hold on to the juice, and we'll take it together here in just a moment. Uh, first of all, I want to point out a couple passages that are in your notes. I added two passages to your notes, Isaiah 58 and Zechariah 7. I added those for your own family discussion or your uh, home group discussions this week because you could use those passages to talk. It's kind of like a point-counterpoint. 
Because Isaiah 58 talks about true fasting. God's like, I don't, like, you think I want this religious show? I don't want a religious show. I want you to actually care for the poor. I want you to actually feed the hungry. I want you to clothe the naked. I want you to rest on Sabbath. That's what I want. I want you to actually be changed. I don't want you to just do a thing. I want the thing to actually change you. Um, and, and I put that in there to remind us that this is not about a spiritual act, a, one more motion that you go through spiritually. This is the same Isaiah that Josh used last week in Isaiah chapter what? I, Isaiah chapter one was a passage that Josh used last week where God was like, you come to me with your church services and your worship and, and it makes me want to vomit because I don't, I don't desire that. Which I, if I, can, if I can be so bold as to provide a counterpoint here today, I am totally 110% behind what Sarah said about Sunday night. That is awesome. But let me just make one thing clear. If that worship with all of our hands raised and tears streaming down our cheeks and people on our knees, if that worship is not changing our hearts to be more merciful, more compassionate, more loving, more generous, God doesn't like it. It, may, it makes him want to vomit, is what he says in Isaiah. If it does not change your heart, it is not worship. No matter how you feel in the moment. He's very clear about that. Same thing with fasting. You can fast and do it perfectly. Perfectly. If it does not lead to internal transformation, God says, that's ridiculous. Don't bring that garbage before me. The core four is about us being changed and us being made new. That's what the core four is about. Prayer and worship and text and fasting. It is a longing for God to change us. If you come to the core four because you've got it all figured out, woe to you. Woe to me. Woe to any of us that come to the core four because I got it. No, we don't. That's the point. Uh, so I got some questions to drive our conversation at home groups this week. First question would be this. What were your thoughts on fasting before this week's message? Have they changed? And are you willing to try anything new? And it's totally acceptable for you to be like, oh, I didn't learn anything new. Marty taught me nothing new this week. I mean, that's fine. It's a totally cool answer if that's the way it is. Just kidding, it is, it is, it is okay. Um, but hopefully there was something in this 10 minute too long sermon where, where God was able to, to go, hey, you, you, you thought this, but maybe think about this. Or maybe God just tapped you on the shoulder and went, now's the time, you know that thing in your life? This is it. Maybe there's, maybe there's something. Ne next question, what experiences have you had with fasting in the past? And has the practice been hard to understand? Maybe some of you have actually had very positive experiences with fasting. You knew all this stuff already. And so maybe you can share that without all the piety and self-righteousness. Not, that not that that's what you're doing. I'm just saying. 
Maybe you can help graciously, generously say, here are some of the things that I've really loved about fasting. Not that I know, but I have experienced some of these things. Maybe that's something that you can bring to the table. Uh, Last question here. What places in your life is God inviting you to practice self-control? By the way, Lent starts on Wednesday. Perfect timing, right? We can all practice this. What do people do? I know we're good Protestants, so I'll relax. Okay, I'm fine. But what do a lot of Christians do with Lent? They fast. They, they take something. They find something and they go without it until Resurrection Sunday. They go without it. They work it out of their life. What a great opportunity to find something. And by the way, just a little side note before we close on that, if there's something in your life that you cannot fast from, and I'm not talking about like the obvious, I mean, if there's, if there's an action or a piece of technology or a substance or anything in your life, and by substance, I mean like chocolate or alcohol or whatever it is, some indulgence that you cannot live without, you cannot fast from, that is a good indication you are struggling with addiction. Okay, I love fasting because fasting is my check, my self-check on whether or not that thing in my life has become an addiction or not. And, and if you're struggling with an addiction, it's not the end of the world. We have some really great things here ab- that help us with addiction. We have this thing called Celebrate Recovery. Yeah, thank you. It, this stuff has worked for decades and decades and decades over the last century. Like this stuff works, this whole recovery thing in our Western culture that we live in works over and over and over again. You can break, God can use these things to break the bonds of addiction in your life. It is possible. Go check it out. Go be a part of that. I'll tell you one thing. That group knows more about the gospel than a lot of us. They understand it in a way that many of us need to. And, and at the end of the day, we, we, are all, we all are in recovery, whether we know it or not. So enough with this whole like, well, that's for that group of people. Nope. Yeah. Mm. Amen. All right. Uh, listen, enough about that. Worst segue ever. When, when, I, when I sit with the bread and the juice, I think about self-control. It makes me think of a verse where Jesus says, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down on my own accord. Like, just think about that this morning. Jesus wasn't killed by anybody. Jesus laid his life down. The the greatest divine act of self-control was a God saying, what is it that you need to be able to set you free from your past? What is it that you need to be able to cleanse your conscience? What is it that you need to be able to be made right? What is it that you need? Because whatever it is that you need, as we talk about atonement and think about atonement and all its different shades, whatever it is that you need, the greatest act of self-control will be a God saying, I got that. I'll drink that cup. I'll suffer that wrath. I'll do that because it's self-control that allows us to see the mission of God for all that it is and all of its wondrous glory. And that's what we celebrate here. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He told them, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. And finally, that night, he also took a cup. 
He passed amongst the disciples. He blessed it. He told them to drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, as we wrap up this series, uh, this first movement around the, the core four, my prayer is that here, even as we close in worship, singing a song about how your spirit would lead us out onto the waters. You would take us places further than we could ever imagine, that we could ever see or dream or know. My prayer is that there, there are those spiritual frontiers that are still unchartered with, with us. Like we haven't gone there, we haven't, but there are still places that you, you want to take us. And my prayer is that we would fast and we would study and we would worship and we would pray in such a way that that transformation, that journey could begin, could take place, that you could pull us out onto the waters. That God, would you, would you change our hearts? We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.